you'd like to bring your refreshments with you, feel free. It could be like a meal in a show. <laughs> okay, I'll start with a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Father God, as we start our second session and as we cover um, this topic of hell, I just want to pray that you would give us uh, wisdom and understanding. And as we read your word, um, may we be just deeply impressed with um, the fact that even in this topic that you are a God that is consistent with who you say you are, that you are indeed a God of love. And I just want to pray that um, as I share that, uh, these thoughts would be clear and um, that your, your word would speak to our hearts today. We pray in your name. Amen. Okay, so there's a gentleman, a, a quite well-known gentleman. His name was, is, was Jonathan Edwards. He's an 18th century American theologian, and in the world of theology, he's kind of considered as one of the most significant theologians um, of, the, um, of the 18th century. Um, and even, uh, he's one of the most significant American theologians. And uh, just a little bit of interesting trivia, he was the founder of Princeton University. Uh, back then, all the Ivy League universities in America were theological training institutions where they would actually teach people how to be pastors. So anyway, Jonathan Edwards um, was that individual, and he preached this really well-known sermons called uh, sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I kind of picture what would it have been like to be sitting in the pews listening to this sermon. And there's a little excerpt of how this sermon went. And here's what Jonathan Edwards said. He said, Erring sinners will be held like loathsome insects by the hand of God over the fiery pit of hell. When they cry out for mercy, how will God respond? He will be so far from pitying those who cry to him, he will only laugh and mock at those who rejected his mercy and reaped their just reward. So clearly Jonathan Edwards is kind of embellishing how God is going to respond when sinners cry out for mercy. And he's kind of, I don't know how he would have presented this when he was preaching. But anyway, I imagine he was kind of yelling at everybody. So Here's what happens when you adopt this view that Jonathan Edwards is um, really um, sharing. Automatically, it makes one question God. What is God actually like if people burn in the fires of hell in this manner? There's a man by the name of Robert Ingersoll. And Robert Ingersoll was a famous American agnostic, and his father was a preacher. And when oh, Robert Ingersoll actually talks about how his dad explained the idea of hell to him, he says that there were babies in hell not more than a few inches long who were destined to burn there throughout eternity. And as Robert Ingersoll grows up in this Christian family, he becomes this agnostic and he asks these questions. Do I really believe in God? And Robert Ingersoll really was one of the pioneers of uh, uh, the agnostic movement in the U.S. 
Today, I want to suggest that this idea of an eternal hellfire is one of the most challenging subjects that causes people to misunderstand God. There's a verse in Romans or in John chapter 4, verse 8. It says that God is love. First John chapter 4, verse 8 says God is love. And if that's true, then the teaching of hell should support the claim that God is love, not detract from it. As we mentioned at the beginning of this series, that every truth that's, or every teaching in the Bible is kind of like one of those lenses that the optometrist uses. And each time a lens falls into place, it should clarify the character and the love of God rather than make it hazy. And so what we're going to be doing today is we're going to add another lens. And my hope is at the end of this talk that it would clarify the character and the love of God, even in this complex topic of hell. So here's a question. If in Christianity we teach this idea of an eternal hellfire, where did it come from? And similar to last week, we're going to see that there's a lot of Greek and Roman mythology that influences um, Christian theology. What we find here as we study mythology is, or when you look at the famous mythological stories of um, Greek and Roman antiquity, there's this idea of an underworld where souls exist forever. And that, those underworlds are ruled by different kings. Uh, so in Greek mythology, that king is Hades. In Roman mythology, it's Pluto. And if we turn to the Bible and explore what it actually says about hell, we're going to see that, or we're going to ask questions and simply answer them from the Bible and see if there's consistency between our understanding of hell and what the Bible actually says. Or I should say, what society has taught in the past about hell and what the Bible actually says about hell. So here's our first question. We're just basically going to do question format or question answer format. So when is hell? Now, what we've seen is that um, from, myth from mythology and from popular teaching, hell is kind of this eternal thing, from eternal past to eternal future. Is hell right now? Is it an eternal place of, whole, uh, eternal place of burning? In the par parable of the sower and the seed, Jesus explains the meaning of this parable, and his explanation of this parable gives insight into the timing of, of hell. And in this parable, we know that there are wheat and there are weeds. And these uh, farm workers come with the farmer and they notice that someone has sabotaged their, uh, their crop. And they kind of ask the question to the farmer, hey, who did this? Why is there wheat along with the weeds? And Jesus says, an enemy has done this. And so the servants ask the farmer, should we go and should we just pull the weeds up? And he says, no, I don't want you to do that because you might hurt the wheat. So notice here, Matthew chapter 13, verses 37 to 42. It says, and he answered and said, he that, oh, excuse me. Um, yeah, I'll just read this. He answered and said, he that sowed the good seed is the son of man and the field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom and the weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy that sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are angels. As therefore the weeds are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that cause stumbling and those that sin, and throw them into the furnace of fire. 
Notice when Jesus gives the explanation of the parable of the sower and the seed, Jesus gives this timeline of judgment or destruction. And if you notice the wording here, hell is a future event. It's not a present or past reality. It's a future event that takes place at the end of the world. Notice here, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. So we've talked about the timing of hell. Here's the next question. Where is hell? In Revelation chapter 20, verses 14, 15, we kind of talked about this in the last session, but just exploring a little bit more in this session. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So if you look at Revelation chapter 20 uh, from the last session, the Bible says that, in the timeline of events at the end of Earth's history, there's a judgment that takes place at the end of the thousand years, that executive judgment. And hell happens after the thousand years at the end of time. Hell is more than a time uh, hell is more about a time than it is a place. It's a time when people who are not in the book of life are judged. And so oftentimes we kind of ask this question, where is hell? Well, it's not really a place. It's that time where judge, executive judgment is executed. So notice hell does not exist in an underworld. Um, it's not a current place in time. The Bible doesn't ever say that there's a current hell where people go to. The Bible does say that when people die, they sleep and they wait in the grave until the second coming of Christ. So what about Satan? Who's in charge of hell? And oftentimes in Greek mythology, you kind of get this picture of Hades or Pluto. And oftentimes, even in different caricatures, you see this red character with horns and a pitchfork. And he's kind of like this evil overlord of hell when he has all these little minions that do his bidding. So the question is, is Satan in charge of hell? Is Satan in charge of hell? Now, if Satan is in charge of hell, it has very significant implications. And I'd like for us to think about this for a moment. If it's true that Satan is in charge of, of hell, it would mean that he's just as powerful as God. If Satan is in charge of hell, he is just as powerful as God. Here's why. It means that Satan is immortal, right? He cannot die. It means that God cannot destroy him. He's just there. Or the other scenario is that God and Satan are business partners, right? Satan, you take care of the bad ones. I'll take care of the good ones for the rest of eternity. And we will just coexist in different parts of the universe. So notice what the Bible actually says about Satan and hell. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. It says, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So Satan is not in charge of hell. Rather, hell is Satan's punishment. It was prepared for him. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 18 and 19, 
The Bible says, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you, O covering cherub. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. So the Bible says that Satan will be consumed by hell. In the Bible, Satan dies. So here's the next question, and we've looked at a couple verses. There are times where the Bible uses something, uh, uses a word called everlasting or eternal. And so is hellfire eternal? Is it everlasting? If you look at Jude chapter 7, it says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And there's that word. The Bible uses this phrase several times, and even when it talks about uh, that final judgment, it uses this phrase, eternal fire. Now, if it's true that this phrase eternal is a literal phrase, there should be two cities in the Middle East that are burning to this day, right? Sodom and Gomorrah are cities that are burning eternally. Well, if you go to modern-day Middle East, to Tal uh, el-Hammam, this is modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah. And what's interesting is that you actually see evidence of fire, but you don't see an unquenchable flame burning through the area, right? So if that phrase is literal, it means that these, sh these cities should be burning right now. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6, it says it gives a different account of the judgment that takes place in Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemning them to destru uh, destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So Peter refers to the same stories, but he says these cities are turned to ashes. So the Bible, when it uses the word eternal, it's talking about the effects of the burning are eternal, but the flame is temporary. The effects of the flame are eternal, but uh, the flame is temporary. So the Bible uses the word eternal as more of a figurative sense as a literal sense. Bible writers are trying to communicate a reality that the effects of the judgment are forever felt. The effects of the judgment are forever felt. There's a prophecy concerning Jerusalem from 600 B.C. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 27 says, I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. So once again, this idea of an eternal fire is given when judgment is pronounced on Jerusalem. But if this is true, if you go to Jerusalem and Israel, there should be a fire that's burning right now to this day. And, you know, you would kind of, I, I imagine it'd be kind of like this normal thing that comes up on the news. It's like, here's the weather in Melbourne, and if you go to Jerusalem, the fire is still burning there. And it's kind of like, it would be like this interesting thing that people would wonder, hey, why doesn't that fire ever go out? But the reality is, when the Bible uses that phrase, it's talking about a figurative sense. It's talking about the completeness of a judgment that's given. Here's another example. The story of Jonah. When Jonah writes about the account, he says, I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. 
Jesus is, or not Jesus, Jonah is talking about this time of judgment where he has been swallowed up by this fish and he's gone down and the effects of it, he feels like he's down there forever. But when Jesus actually gives the account in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, it says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, Jesus kind of confirms that story of Jonah where he's saying Jonah was in there for a three-day journey in the belly of the fish. So what actually happens when it comes to this time of judgment? What is the actual thing that takes place? Malachi chapter 4 verses 1 and 3 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning as a furnace, and all the proud and all that do wickedness shall be stubble. And the day that is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I make, says the Lord. Here's an actual description of what the effects of hell will be like. If hell is eternal, we'll be able to be alive forever. But that's inconsistent with what this passage is saying. It's saying that we become ash. Now think about the character of God if hell is eternal. You think about how judgment actually works. And the Bible is talking about how judgment should be fair. It should highlight the righteousness of God. But if hell is an eternal place, it really puts that fairness of God into question. For example, if you think about Cain, in the Bible, here's a man who kills one person and basically judgment is given to Cain saying, your life is forever changed. And we could safely say from what the Bible says, Cain should be in hell. He's lost, lost soul. So Cain kills one person and he goes to hell for who knows how long, say thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But then you think of someone like Adolf Hitler who killed millions and millions and millions of people, right? He's responsible for killing millions and millions and millions of people. How long would he be in hell? Oh, maybe 80 odd years. Like, and, and, and that puts into question the fairness of God. Here's another scenario. Let's say a person lives for 70 years. And for 70 years of their life, they decide, I'm going to live my life however the way I want to. Forget about God. Forget about the Bible. Forget about morality. I'm just going to do whatever I want. Right? So for 70 years of revelry, 70 years of just not caring about morality, that person is then chucked into a, 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 a burning fire for eternity. Like, think about that for a second. 70 years of badness, and then now I have to pay for eternity. Is that really fair? Charles Pinnock is a Pentecostal theologian, and he writes, Everlasting torture is intolerable from a moral point of view because it pictures God acting like a bloodthirsty monster who maintains an everlasting Auschwitz for his enemies, whom he does not even allow to die. I suppose one might be afraid of a God like that, but could we love and respect him? Anthony Flew, an influential atheistic philosopher, was right to object that if Christians really believe that God created people with the full intention of torturing some of them in hell forever, they might as well give up the effort to defend Christianity. 
you know, we read these verses in the last section, um, but let's let's review them because Revelation gives an account of hell through them. So Revelation chapter 20, <clears throat> and we're going to see what hell actually is. Can we go back to that slide? <laughs> okay, Revelation 20, verses 9 and 10. It says, And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who was deceived, uh, who, who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. And next slide. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, what's interesting to me is that in the very next chapter, it talks about this new Jerusalem and God wiping away every tear and bringing about this um, new paradise in the very place where hell is. And so fire comes down and then God recreates the earth. Now, oftentimes when we think of this idea of hell, it's kind of this uneasy topic. And if I were God... It's something that I'd almost want to hide, if that makes sense. You know, when I meet people for the first time, I, would, I usually don't put my um, worst side forward first. You know, if I'm impatient and I meet someone for the first time, I'm usually not like, that's not the side of my character that I want to show off. But in the Bible, God is so unapologetic about this idea that there is destruction, that there is this sense of judgment. So then how do you rationalize this and put it alongside of the fact that God is supposed to be this loving, caring, and merciful God? You know, hellfire doesn't make sense to someone who doesn't adopt the worldview or the understanding of how devastating sin actually is. If we do not accept what sin is, then hell does not make sense. But if you do understand what sin is, then hell makes a lot of sense. You know, my mother had a stroke uh, when I was 15, and uh, she went to the hospital. And while she was in the hospital, she had a second stroke. And basically, she was in the hospital for maybe two weeks, and she was in a coma, and she wasn't going to come out of it. And so the doctor basically comes to my dad and he tries to explain to my dad, hey, your wife is in a really difficult spot. And he's trying to explain the different implications, but my dad couldn't understand. And so the doctor then turned to my brother and started explaining to my brother, look, your mother, um, if she, it's going to be a miracle if she comes out of a coma. And if she does, she is not going to be mobile. Like she's going to have a very, very low quality of life. So there are two options that you have. One, she's on life support, and life support is the only reason why she is able to breathe and she's able to be alive. So one option is you hope that she comes out of that coma, and then when she does, she'll be completely dependent, and it's going to be really hard for you. The other option is that you turn off life support and just let nature take its course and just let her move on peacefully. So those are your two, those are your two options. So my brother goes to my dad and he says, he, he says, hey, these are the two things that are happening. What do you want to do? And my dad asks my brother, um, what do you think we should do? And so here's my brother thinking, I have to decide whether or not my mom is going to live or die. And so he made the decision, let's turn off life support. Let her go peacefully. Right? Let her go peacefully. Now, 
that's one of the hardest decisions my brother's ever made. And, you know, every now and then our family will go to the gravesite and, you know, visit my mom's grave. And whenever I go with my brother, I can tell, like, that it's really hard for him, you know. It's really, really hard for him. <clears throat> and when I think about the fact that in his mind, he's responsible for my mom's death, right? He he pushed the button, right? He's the one that pulled the plug. And none of us have ever held that against him. Like, I don't think to myself, man, you're the reason why she's not here. Or you must have thought about all the times where she did so many bad things to you or when she disciplined you and you were so mad at her and that's why you pulled the plug. Like, I've never, ever once thought that. But the reality is that there are these strange, strange circumstances where it makes more sense to let someone go peacefully and end life rather than prolong it. There are these strange, strange circumstances. And what happens is sin presents that circumstance. Sin presents that circumstance because sin prolongs suffering it prolongs death. It lowers the quality of life. Sin does that. And so here is God where he's left with this difficult situation. Do I prolong it or do I then end it? In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, it says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. In God's mind, he doesn't want there to be destruction. And so, of course, we've been talking about this time where God provides mercy, where there's this out. But the reality is that there is sin in the world. And so there's hell. And what the Bible says about hell is that hell is momentary. It's an act of justice. There are times where you have to implement some sort of implementation of justice. You know, when you think about World War II and all the, all the rules of engagement that were broken, all the chemical warfare, all the concentration camps, there are times where the community cries out for justice. And, you know, that's really why the United Nations was put together. And people are looking to the UN saying, hey, do something. And so they had these war trials that took place. And you might think that it's kind of like this harsh reality where they went and hunted down people who had really committed war crimes and they they brought them before a jury and they tried them and they executed them but the reality was it was right to do that because so much wrong had been done and so hell is a time where it's an act of justice because it needs to be done can you imagine um you know it's, it's kind of interesting because in australia there's no death penalty right and i come from the u.s where there is death penalty and there are times where there are um, victims of, of really, really horrible crimes where you see the family members who have lost a loved one from someone who's been raped or whatever it may be. And those family members look at the person who is the guilty criminal and they're saying, we need the system to do something. And if in those moments the system says, you know what, you can just go free, don't worry about it. Those family members are left incredibly, incredibly frustrated. And so what happens at the end of Earth's history is that judgment is executed. Hell is that. And what we read is that it's an act of mercy. 
it's consistent with God's character because it's a time where God says, no more sin. I'm ending this. I'm ending this so that we can move on. I hope that the truth of hell can give you a clearer understanding of the heart of God. I hope that as you spend time, and for for a lot of you, this is going to be kind of like a new idea, a new topic. I highly encourage you to actually go through, reread these passages, read scripture with that question of, is my understanding of hell accurate? Does it rightly portray God? Does it help me um, when it comes to um, me understanding yeah, who God is, what he's like, what he feels, what he thinks. Is my understanding of hell consistent with what scripture says? I highly encourage you to um, study, to search, to ask, to pray, to seek God. Would you join me as we finish our second session in prayer? Father God, as we've looked at two um, difficult, tricky, and uh, even un- uneasy topics, I just want to pray that you would... Inspire us to search, inspire inspire us to study your word, and may we come to know who you really are. We pray these things in your name. Amen.